0: Well, good morning, church family. I am absolutely delighted to be sharing God's Word with you this morning. As I was preparing for this passage, um, I began to become a little daunted with the uh, extravagant imagery, with the mighty angel, and with Uh, John eating a scroll, and I began to uh, have the same sentiment that Chris Bennett shared last week. Isn't it interesting that every time we have passages like this, our wonderful senior pastor just happens to have a wonderful vacation plan (laughs) to the Carolinas? But in all seriousness, I really am delighted to be sharing this magnificent text with us today. Um, Just before I read the text, I want to set up contextually where we are. If you remember last week, Chris... uh, Helpfully and wonderfully went through the seven trumpets. And so we're actually going to zoom in between the sixth and the seventh trumpet We're looking at an interlude all the interlude is is just a literary device to draw out the tension between the sixth and the seventh trumpet But the end of time is coming and so that's kind of where we are in the story and in a sense uh, Our interlude is chapters 10 and 11 so next week David will preach on chapter 11 and the two witnesses So our text today is introductory in nature. It's John being commissioned as a prophet to preach God's Word. And so, if you'll please stand for the reading of God's Word. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring, When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land uh, raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, But in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel, who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take it and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord endures forever. And may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. May 21st, 2011. Does anyone remember that day? You should, obviously, because it was the day the world ended, or at least it was supposed to end, according to a man named Harold Camping. Harold Camping was the founder and uh, longtime radio host of Family Radio Network, and he believed with his study of symbols and biblical dates that he was able to predict the end of the world, and he believed it was coming May 21st, 2011. He had no small following. His followers took to the streets two years in advance to, to promote this great advertising campaign that the world, the end of it, was coming. And so they took to the streets. They made pamphlets and translated them into 75 different language. Uh, they made one billboard and then another until there were 5,000 billboards all across the United States of America. When it was all said and done, they believed that over $100 million were raised to let people know that the end of the world was coming, May 21st. 2011. As the date approached, anticipation built, and many of Harold's followers began to get nervous and anxious, and so they maxed out credit cards, they took on irrational debt, and they made um, decisions that even ended up harming themselves. We're told tragically of one man in Taiwan who saw the recent hurricanes and tsunamis, and he feared that it meant that ending uh, and pending judgment was, was nigh, and so he actually leapt from a building to his death. And so We, most of us here, understand where Harold Camping went wrong, right? May 21st came, May 21st went, there was no Judgment Day. Harold eventually recanted, repented, stepped down from from Family Radio Network. But we kind of understand why he was wrong. Simply, he just didn't believe what Jesus had said, that no man knows the day or the hour when the Son of Man will come and will come in Judgment. But I think that there's something deeper here. Why did so many people get swept up into this mindset that the end of the world was coming, that they could predict it? I think there's probably two things. One, it's nice to have a sense of control. If we know the day, maybe there's a sense where we can have some psychological ease and peace. But I also think one of the significant things that is prevalent in our culture is that we interpret Scripture, particularly Revelation, through newspaper clippings. Um, this type of hermeneutic Tom Schreiner calls newspaper eschatology. And it's the idea that if we, uh, you know, can use math and, oh, we can just look at the right newspaper clippings, see the right pandemic or the right uh, hurricane, that we can combine it all together and figure out what the key to the interpretation of Revelation is. But the traditional Reformed Protestant understanding of, of Scripture is we don't go to newspaper clippings to figure out the solution. The old adage is as true as ever, scripture interprets scripture. Revelation is a picture book, it's not a puzzle book. And it's, you know, we'll talk about this more, but it's a recapitulation, it's telling the same story over and over again. God wins. It's very simple, but it's told in this grand, majestic way. And so our passage today, we will interpret it no different. We're going to scripture and we have some confusing images and I promise you, the key to unlocking the beauty of scripture is in scripture. And so that's where we'll be today. And our passage today starts with a mighty angel coming down from heaven. In the book of Revelation, angels often serve a very transitional role. They're often carrying out all the cosmic judgments that God is telling them to do. But also in terms of just literarily in the book, they serve a significant role because they are transitions. John will look to his right or look to his left or look up. And it means, okay, we're moving to the next part of the book. And so, our angel today certainly serves a transitional role. We're moving into this interlude, or we're drawing out tension until we get to the seventh trumpet. But I want to posit to you today that this angel is not an ordinary angel, but that this angel is very unique. In fact, I'm going to posit to you, because of the imagery that it's used to describe this angel, the only other time that this type of imagery is used is when the Bible talks about Jesus Christ, or when it talks about God Almighty Himself. And so many Reformed Old Testament scholars and New Testament scholars believe that this angel is actually Jesus Christ, is actually our Lord and Savior. But what's so amazing and so unique about this depiction is that it's a callback to the Old Testament. There's a figure in the Old Testament called the Angel of the Lord who most... Um, Christians believe is the pre-incarnate Christ. And I think we have that Old Testament angel of the Lord being depicted right here. If you don't remember who this Old Testament figure, the angel of the Lord is, I'm just going to brush us brush up on the memory of that and go through two examples. So the first one you'll all be very familiar with is Exodus 3. Moses walks up and he sees a burning bush. And we're told that the angel of the Lord goes into the burning bush and speaks out. And most of you are familiar, right? This is where God... Yahweh himself says, you will go tell Pharaoh that I am who I am, has sent you to let my people go. And so what we see here is that the angel of the Lord is simultaneously identified as Yahweh, but also distinct. Another very significant moment that I really want to hone in on. The angel of the Lord is mentioned when Israel is led out of, Isra- led out of Egypt. Um, what do they say? They're led by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. I want y'all to hold on to those imagery. Cloud and fire describes both Yahweh, he's said to be in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, but also the angel of the Lord is said to be in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. So when we come to our text today, we see very, very similar language. We see this idea of the angel who's standing with his uh, feet straddling the earth and the sea, he's wrapped in a cloud. And so not only is this a callback to the, the the cloud by day, but it's also a callback to the son of man Says Jesus himself says he's when he returns he's gonna come on the clouds of heaven or maybe you can remember at the transfiguration The Shekinah glory cloud of God comes and he says to the three apostles on the mountain This is my son listen to him. And so the cloud represents God's heavenliness his majesty his glory Okay, let's move to the next description. It says his face is like the Sun again the only time that this phrase is used is of Jesus. Actually, in our very book, uh, Revelation 1.16, we're told that the Son of Man, his face shines like the sun in full strength. And uh, very memorably, at the transfiguration, when Jesus unveils his glory, says that his face shines like the sun in Matthew 17:2. And so this shining like the sun represents Jesus' beauty, his splendor, his purity, his perfect righteousness, and his moral character. That is without um, taint or darkness. There's no variation in him. Then we see this is very significant a direct verbal allusion back to the pillar of fire that led Israel out of Egypt. So his legs are like pillars of fire. And throughout the book of Revelation, fire always, without exception, represents judgment. And so what we're seeing here is that this grand figure, Jesus himself, the Old Testament angel of the Lord, straddles the earth and the sea, and what is he doing? He's asserting that he is king, he is judge, he is Lord, he is sovereign over it all. And I think this is really uh, a beautiful picture. We also see just a few verses later that it says his voice roars like a lion, which is a callback to Revelation 5-2 with the lion of the tribe of Judah opens the scroll of the seven seals. And so I think that there's a very compelling case to say that this angel is Jesus um, but he's being depicted in his pre-incarnate form before he became a baby in a manger. And so what, what's the significance? Why do I spend a little bit of time drawing out this, that this is Jesus, this is the angel of the Lord? Because I think sometimes we can, we can forget that Jesus predates the New Testament. Jesus predates the Old Testament. Right? Jesus is eternal. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is God himself. I mean, how amazing is it? This is our God. Standing. power and might I mean this is amazing and I think this this if we pause here and think about this this will speak to our lives to know that we have a great God who is in control of everything he sees you many of us in this room are going through hard things struggles difficulties and it's it's wonderful to know that God sees you he loves you he cares about you and he's in control and everything that's happening in your life he's working for the good of those who love him so how amazing is that that we have a God who is not easy to be defeated because he can't be defeated he is in control of all things okay we're gonna to move to the next part of our passage we talked about this grand figure the angel of the Lord and Jesus himself so we see now that Jesus the angel of the Lord shouts out and what does it say his voice roars like a lion And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, this is John, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. Okay, so we've already heard Chris last week preached on the seven trumpets. A couple weeks before that, David preached on the seven seals, I believe, or maybe that was Dave, and they both did a great job describing that this is a recapitulation of God's judgment It's a different angle of how it's described, but I want to go into detail of what this word recapitulation means We we keep saying it here at Providence, but I I want to give kind of an analogy of what that means Okay, so suppose that Haven my my wonderful wife and I decided that we wanted to catch capture the essence of our living room So we hired a photographer. We said okay We want you to capture the essence of our living room, but you have to take multiple pictures You can't just do it with one picture you have to do it with multiple okay in order to capture the essence of our awesome living room that Haven has put together. They'd have to take pictures of our right wall and our left wall and our carpets and our ceilings and our couches, whatever, to get the whole picture. But each time they took a picture, they would be taking a picture of the same room. But each picture would draw out a different angle, a different dimension, a different perspective that elucidates and illumines our understanding of what the room is. That is what these seven you know, forms of judgment are. The seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven thunders tucked away here. Later we'll hear about the seven bowls. It's different angles and different dimensions that are being drawn out to help us get an understanding of what this great and glorious time will be like. So, after the angel of the Lord does this mighty seven thunders, he gives this mighty and magnificent oath, and he declares that God is the creator, and so this is just emphasizing that God is unique and holy, and it is in his wisdom and his divine power to decide when the seventh trumpet will come. We see that, let's see, what is it? Verse 7, But in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. What, What is this getting at, this idea that the mystery of God throughout the New Testament represents Jesus Christ. If you go look to Colossians 2, Colossians 2.2, I believe, it says that Christ is the mystery of God. And so what mystery has Christ revealed to us in his person and work? That salvation is not just for the Jew, but for the Gentile also. And so this great oath that the angel is declaring, he's saying, you know, when the seven trumpet comes, there will be no more delay. Time will be over. Um, every wrong will be made right. Every tear will be wiped away. God will declare victory and justice. And so the idea of the mystery of God being fulfilled is that God will get every last one of his people. The gospel announcement will be accomplished. There will be no failure, not an iota of failure will happen. God will win. Our sovereign king never loses. Okay. Imagine that what we've just done is we're, we're like a drone and we've gone over this text, you know, and seen this amazing and beautiful landscape. Okay. Now we're going to come in and we're going to hone in on what I think is really the meat of the passage. And I want us to focus and zoom in on the last um, kind of three verses. And so if you remember, we just read it, that a voice comes out of heaven and tells John, go take the scroll that is in the angel's hand. This scroll has a lot of similarities to the scroll that's in Revelation 5. But we're going to see its contents in, in just a few minutes. And so he's told that he's to take the scroll and then do something very peculiar. He's to eat the scroll. And he's told that when he eats the scroll, it will be bitter in his stomach and sweet in his mouth. And then he obeys, and he eats the scroll, and it's sweet in his mouth and bitter in his stomach. And he's told that he now must go prophesy about many kings, nations, and kingdoms. It probably would be better translated as prophesy against many kings, nations, and kingdoms. Well, the key to understanding this text is not the newspaper clippings. Okay? What, what does this eating mean? It's found in Scripture. So there's a direct allusion and callback to the book of Ezekiel. So if you want to turn to panel six in your bulletin, you'll see that Jesus, God, is recapitulating this idea of what it means to be commissioned as a prophet. There's going to be eating of God's word that is involved in this idea. So I'm going to read that for us real quick. This is what God's word says. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. This is God speaking to Ezekiel. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house, Israel, Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me. And behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me. And it had writing on the front and on the back. And there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go. Speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth. He gave me the scroll to eat. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly with the scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. Okay, so first we're going to talk about why the eating of the scroll, and then we're going to say why is it bitter and why is it sweet as honey. First, why are we eating the scroll? One commentator puts it this way. The reason that the prophet has authority that Ezekiel has authority and that John has authority, is this, that he carries in his own body the very word of God, okay? What we see here in this context is that John is going to a rebellious people that probably aren't gonna listen, they're gonna be stubborn, and so what gives, uh, gives Ezekiel and John the authority to say, no, you must repent and believe, is the fact that he has the words of God in his very own body. But I also think there's another thing that's worth noting here, and it's this idea that the reason that he eats the word of God is because the word of God is sustaining what we will ultimately see both next week in Revelation 11 that the preaching that John does after when he prophesies about it leads to the persecution of the two witnesses uh, which David will talk about more next week and in our in our uh, second passage in Ezekiel it leads to persecution for Israel we're actually told that if you if you want to understand Revelation 10 better, I really would encourage you to go read Ezekiel 1:26 through Ezekiel 3. It will really color and flavor the passage for you. It's really, really helpful. But the rest of Ezekiel 3 kind of talks about how Ezekiel's to go to a people that are stubborn. God says their, their heads are like stone and they're hard-headed. But he says, don't worry, I'm going to give you a head of flint and emerald that's going to be harder. And it's basically like you're going to be in this head-butting match with the people of Israel. But I will sustain you and give you the authority and power to win. But ultimately, what Ezekiel's being called to do is warn people in love, even though it's hard. And so the reason that he's eating the word of God is so that he will be sustained. Okay, so we know now why he's eating the word of God. Why is it bitter? Why is the scroll bitter? The scroll is bitter because of the words of judgment and lamentation that are written in it. If you caught that in Ezekiel, right? It says, and it had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. I think a lot of us can relate to this. We have, many of us have family and friends, dearly loved ones who, they, they don't see the beauty of Jesus like we do. And it's not, we don't enjoy telling them that they must repent of their sins and trust in Jesus, and otherwise there will be judgment. And so there's a bitterness for us. We don't take pleasure in the destruction of the wicked, as God says in Ezekiel 18. We want our brothers and sisters to know the love of Jesus. And so whenever we have to preach, hey, if you don't repent, there's judgment, there's bitterness associated with that. I think also what's being uh, connected here is that the bitterness is connected to the persecution that will be to follow, um, which is both prevalent in Revelation and in our Ezekiel passage. That to add insult to injury, there's a double compounding effect. Already is it, it's already bitter that we have to preach something of judgment. But it's even more bitter when we preach that judgment. People reject it, and then they don't like us because of it, and it leads to our persecution. And so that was definitely the case in Revelation. Uh, the time period with which it was written in 90 AD, were, many of them were being uh, you know, persecuted and executed, and, and, and gruesome things were happening. And so there, there is a bitterness in this scroll for that reason. Okay, why is it sweet? Let's move on to why is it sweet. Okay. It's sweet... Because primarily God's judgments are true. Even in the hard things. Okay? Even in the bitter, there's a sweetness because God is a righteous judge and everything that he decrees is true. So that's part of it, for sure. I mean, that's definitely in the context that God is righteous in all judgments that he makes. At the end of days, you know, we may not be able to see how it all works together right now, but at the end of time, we will say, blessed is the Lamb and his judgments are true and right. There will be no wrong found in God. And so even though we may not understand all of the hard things right now, we can know that God has done no wrong. So there's sweetness in that. But I also think, more specifically, I've already kind of alluded to this, but God's word is sweet because it is sustaining. Okay? So we've already kind of talked about, Robbie did a wonderful job with our confession of faith, kind of elucidating Psalm 119. That God's words, what does it say? How sweet are your words to my taste? Sweeter than honey to my mouth. So there's definitely, in our, in our passage today, an allusion back to the Psalms, that God's word is sweet. But I would actually say that I think in the Psalms themselves, there's actually an allusion back to Israel in the wilderness. If you remember, Israel's traveling through the wilderness. They've just crossed the Red Sea. God has mightily rescued them from slavery, and they begin grumbling and complaining and wish that they were back in uh, Egypt with the meat pots and, and as slaves still because they don't have any food. But God graciously, lovingly, like a good father, says, I will provide you with bread from heaven, manna. And if you remember, that manna, what did it taste like? It tasted like honey. Okay, Hang with me here. It will, it, there will be a connection. Okay? Why would God give them bread that tasted like honey? Well, where were they going? They were going to Canaan. And over and over and over again, Canaan, the promised land, is said to be flowing with milk and honey. And so it's this idea. The bread that they were given every day, it sustained them because it reminded them of where they're going. It gave them a taste of the promised land every day. So why is God's word sweet? Because it gives you a taste of the promised land. It gives you a taste of heaven. It gives you a taste of the character of God. That if you trust in Jesus, there's a sweetness there. Because you are coming into communion with God himself. It's amazing. Okay, so now I have kind of went through the whole passage. I want to kind of step back. Maybe focus on some more application. How does this apply to us? So I'm going to do kind of three things on the bitterness of God's Word and three things on the sweetness of God's Word. Two of the things in our bitterness section we've kind of already talked about, so I'll go through them quickly, right? Why is God's Word bitter? Sometimes we have to preach repentance, and that's not easy, okay? And sometimes it can be bitter because it seems like the person I'm preaching to, no way are they going to repent. They are so against God, there's no way they're going to But we're told in 2 Corinthians that we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. So it's not our job to decide who is worthy of being preached to or not. That is in God's hands. And we get to delight in his purposes and hope and pray that our message is a fragrance of life to life. Okay, we talked about that a little bit. We've already talked about how Application, sometimes preaching God's Word can lead to suffering. I mean, we have many brothers and sisters. Um, you know, right now, maybe we have a, you know, a freedom of religion that, that we're in a far more cozy situation than the early church was. That's, that's for true. Although, there does seem that there is a, some vitriol rising against the overall message of the gospel lately. But we have brothers and sisters in other countries right now who are being arrested and they are enduring suffering for the cause of Christianity and for the cause of the gospel. And there's bitterness attached to that. That's another application that sometimes preaching God's word can be bitter in that way because it leads to suffering. And then finally, I think that there can be a bitterness application here, just in overall sanctification. Sometimes God's word says things that we don't like. (laughs) Like, um, when I get home and I would rather watch TV than help with dishes, right? God's word would say, you need to be humble and help Haven out, okay? She doesn't just do everything for you. You need to be a loving and humble and kind and gentle husband. And sometimes when my flesh interacts, my sin interacts with God's word, there's a sting that comes attached to it that says you must be humbled. And so this is kind of the whole principle of mortification, right? In order for there to be life, there has to first be death. And that death doesn't feel good. It's bitter. But this is is the key, I think. The reason that the bitterness is there, is to launch us back into the sweetness of God's Word. And so there's death, but following death, there's life. And so now let's step in to the sweetness of God's Word. I think some of you, you know, when you hear that God's Word is sweet, you, like, instantly resonate with it. Like, and maybe that's just where you are in your life, and I just think that's so amazing. Like when you read God's Word, every time you read it, you're just like, wow, this is amazing. I can't believe that this is the God that I worship, the God who created everything. I had a friend who I talked on the phone with this week, who um, was telling me he went through a time of sincere and serious doubt. Um, And he was an atheist for a year. But he began to really study and dig into God's word and little by little with the help of the Holy Spirit, he began to see the beauty of God's word. And now it's about 15 years later, he told me, he said, "You know, now every time I read God's word, I just get goosebumps. It's so amazing. You know, and like, I think some of us, like, when we hear that God's Word is sweet, we're like, it's objectively true. Every time. But I want to be sensitive here, you know. Some of us, maybe when we open God's Word, we haven't felt that in a while. Maybe we did at one point. We read God's Word, and that was several years ago. But now when we read it, it's like, same old, same old. I've heard this before. I don't understand it. It's not interesting. What's going on? God, are you there? I want to experience your presence. But it doesn't seem like you're there. And so there's not necessarily a bitterness but there's certainly not a sweetness. And so I think what I want to end on, briefly, I'm going to give three kind of helpful scriptural principles that could help us. What do we do when we want to experience the sweetness of God's word, but we aren't? What do we do when we want badly to experience communion with God himself, but, it, but it's hard? So here, here's my first principle. And you're going to roll your eyes at me because it's so simple. The first answer is read it. The first answer is read it. But read it habitually, okay? We've already compared God's Word to food, okay? But let me do it again. I bet none of you can remember every meal that you've had in your entire life. Okay? But all the meals that you've had played a significant and important role in getting you here today, okay? They have had a sustaining and important role in your life. Um, you know, not every meal is going to be an amazing steak on Friday Haven made me like a meal that I will remember for a very long time. It was amazing Um, not every meal is like that. So and that's that's okay You know, sometimes for lunch you need a pb and j, but it gets you from point a to point b And so I think sometimes maybe we need to temper our expectations, okay When we come to god's word not every time is is, is it all going to click and it's going to be that amazing steak or, or whatever your favorite food is Sometimes it's just going to be sustaining and it's going to be good. And you're going to look back after two years and say, God was with me there. God was with me there. That was what I needed to hear in that time. It may not have been revolutionary, but it was nonetheless good. And so first principle, read God's word habitually and just understand that it is sustaining. Second principle, and this is really important, pray when you read God's word. Every time that you come to God's word, you know, if you are longing for the sweetness of God's word, tell him. Lord, I want communion with you. I want to experience the desire of my heart. Badly. And so say, Lord, I want to know you better. Would you reveal yourself to me in this time? For these 15, 20, 30, hour, however long you're meeting with him, just say, God, meet with me. And Jesus says, ask and you will receive. I promise you, if you are consistent, God loves you and he will answer you in his word. And he wants to commune with you. He wants to show you his glory. So pray. Prayer should never be divorced from reading God's Word. And then finally, and this is probably most significant, when you read God's Word, wherever you are, look for Jesus. Jesus is all over God's Word. And this is really, I think, where the sweetness of God comes to a head. Whenever you encounter the heart of Christ in Scripture, you will experience rest. And you will be able to see his love for you and his compassion for you. Um, And so I would encourage you, you know, Jesus is not just in the Old Testament when the angel of the Lord shows up. He is there, and those passages are really cool, and I encourage you to study them. But he's also in the boring passages, too. He's prefigured, he's prophesied about, he's prepared for, he fulfills the law and the covenants. He's everywhere in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And so when you are reading God's word or you're going to a sermon and you're listening, you should be asking God in prayer, show me Jesus, show me your son, show me your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. For me, I have found it to be helpful when I'm really particularly struggling to go to the Gospels, because Jesus is really on display there. For some people, will be others. Maybe it's the Psalms, or maybe it's the Epistles. But fi- find a place where in the past you have really seen the person and work of Jesus at work, and go there and just camp out there and look at Jesus and just see how wonderful and beautiful he is and that's really the key of the whole sermon the sweetness of god really comes all together in the person of jesus for in jesus christ for in jesus christ we experience the true wonder and glory of god's word for jesus is the word made flesh he is the true manna the bread from heaven so in the person and work of jesus we find our sweet remedy for our sin And we find a mighty and powerful and eternal king who straddles the earth and the sea, who says, I've got everything in control. And if you put your faith in me, I will take you home and all will be made well. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that every time we open up your word, we get a touch of your glory and a touch of heaven. And I pray that everyone in here, in this room, that they would leave here invigorated to commune with you, to just be excited about opening up their Bibles and to experience the sweetness of your word, that we would go out and be obedient people who love your word, who love you, and experience true joy and true contentment that comes from you and your son, Jesus Christ.